During World War I, soldiers were stuck in the trenches for months on end. So, for the first time, combatants turned to chemical weapons to push ahead and break through the stalemate. And by the end of the war, the U.S. capacity for chemical warfare had surpassed all of its allies in the span of just 18 months. Journalist Theo Emery tells us how it happened. Well, there were centuries of uh, treaties that governed laws of war in Europe, um, and uh, gas warfare had actually been a part of those uh, treaties and those negotiations for a very long time. There was actually a treaty in 1675, the uh, Strasbourg Agreement between oh France and Germany, uh, which prohibited the use of poison bullets. Um, more recently than that, there was also the uh, um, uh, Brussels Agreement uh, in 1876 and the Hague Conventions in 1899 and in 1907 that uh, forbid the use of asphyxiating gases in shells. So there was a, a pretty clear, uh, you know, when the Germans used chemical weapons, uh, I guess you could say successfully for the first time in April of 1915, it was definitely seen as a violation of international law, both the letter of the law as well as the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was an immediate, you know, very strong reaction on the part of newspaper editorials, you know, all across the world, um, a great deal of outcry over this. Um, and yet, uh, all of the combatants then went forward with their own uh, chemical weapons programs. So, Theo, give me some sense of what life was like at American University in these testing facilities. Sure. It was, uh, I have to say, it was a, a very grim existence for, uh, for these men. Uh, it was very dangerous. Um, it was uh, a lot of uncertainty about what kinds of uh, substances they were handling. There was a constant danger uh, of injury, and injuries were actually quite common. Uh, they were actually required as well to participate in what were called man tests. And sometimes these were tests where they would put on a gas mask and test how well it was working. Uh, but some of the tests also included things like rolling up their sleeve and having different new kinds of chemical agents dropped on their skin to mm. see what the impact would be. Um, and uh, there's many photos at the National archives of uh, soldiers with their sleeves rolled up with uh, these, uh, you know, blisters on their skin where they've been uh, tested with chemical agents. So it was very dangerous, uh, kind of grim work. And in around 1918, uh, the Chemical Warfare Service recognized that unless they made a little bit more of an effort to kind of uh, improve life for these men, that morale was going to suffer. So uh, they started a whole series of different things to try to, uh, frankly, improve life uh, for these soldiers and chemists. And so they started a newspaper, for example. Uh, they started uh, banjo clubs and a glee club. They had dances. They wow. had a talent show. Um, they... Uh, they had uh, sports teams. They actually had a very successful football team called the Mustard Gassers, uh, not surprisingly, <laughs> uh, who apparently uh, beat uh, most, if not all, the other uh, Army intramural football teams all around Washington, D.C. So there was this effort to kind of uh, provide a, a slightly lighter uh, recreation for the men who, who faced uh, some, you know, really difficult work and very dangerous work on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Discuss Amos Freeze. He found himself appointed chief to the Expeditionary Force Gas Service in the United States. What did he do to prepare for gas warfare? After expecting to be put in charge of the roads in France, he's called into his superior officer's office and said, how would you like to be chief of the gas service in Europe? And he thinks about it, uh, and he says, well, somebody's got to be the goat, and might as well be me. So mm -hmm. he accepts it, and they hand him 
uh, the way he described it was a thin manila folder which contained everything that the American expeditionary forces knew about gas warfare at that point. Um, so he built this up uh, essentially from nothing, mainly mm-hmm. from uh, learning from and piggybacking off of the efforts of the French, but especially the British uh, and, and their efforts at uh, establishing a, a chemical warfare uh, arsenal and capacity. After the war, Amos Fries becomes a vocal advocate of chemical warfare. I'm curious about the kinds of arguments he made in favor of using those weapons. Um, so uh, on the one hand, uh, Fries took the view that chemical warfare was more humane than conventional weapons. Hmm. And the argument, that argument came out of uh, data that was collected by uh, the uh, War Department that showed that while many soldiers were injured by chemical weapons, very few of them died from them. So Mm. uh, to uh, freeze and like-minded advocates of chemical weapons, this meant that it took soldiers off the battlefield without killing them or maiming them permanently. So Mm. therefore, it was a more humane weapon because uh, you weren't, uh, say, disfigured or, uh, or, or for that matter, dismembered by something like high explosives or a machine gun. On the other hand, he also made an argument, sometimes in the same breadth, that (laughs) chemical weapons uh, were necessary because you needed to make war so horrible, just so awful, that no one would ever want to fight them again. So we would Mm. be, these are sort of the early seeds of strategic deterrence, uh, which became you know, a, a, a huge uh, factor in uh, in the 20th century with nuclear weapons. So he right. took the view that uh, that warfare just uh, the chemical weapons would make war so awful that no one would want to fight it. So he would say these things uh, almost in the same breath. You know, they're more humane, and at the same time, they made the battlefield so awful uh, that no one would even want to go to war. Full of mm. contradictions. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious to know how America's experience of developing chemical weapons might have served as a precursor for the Manhattan Project or even for what Eisenhower would later describe as the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think this history is, is so important uh, because in a lot of ways, uh, it's not some uh, kind of atavistic fact of the past. It, it, in many ways, it's actually still with us today in ways that I think uh, you know aren't, aren't that obvious and should be understood a little bit better. So one of them is uh, the fact that uh, the idea of deterrence, uh, that everyone has to have a weapon in order to prevent anyone from using that weapon uh, is an idea that did not begin with nuclear weapons after World War II. It began with chemical weapons in World War I. Mm. So this uh, this this um, policy of deterrence, which kind of undergirded sort of the spine of the 20th century and the Cold War, is something that came directly out of World War I, which I think a lot of people have forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a little bit more concretely than that, you're right, um, many historians consider the very rapid uh, 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 creation of the Chemical Warfare Service as kind of a precursor, a dry run, really, for the Manhattan Project in World War II. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, some of the same people were actually involved with both. Um, the young chemist who was in charge of the plant in Willoughby, Ohio, making lewisite, uh, was James Bryant Conant who went on to become president of Harvard and then became a key figure in the Manhattan Project. Wow. And that's true of other very well-known uh, physicists uh, and other scientists who also 
uh, worked on chemical warfare in World War One and participated in or assisted with the Manhattan Project in World War Two. So, um, so I think that's a, a very real uh, legacy as well. Take us back to the beginning of the story, where you know the, the development of chemical weapons in the United States at American University jumps off. And tell me what happened at American University after World War I, and particularly in the area of D.C. where the campus was located. You know, by the end of the war, uh, American University was, uh, you know, it, it was almost like a kind of toxic boomtown um, mm-hmm. with almost 2,000 soldiers and scientists there. Now, um, by mid-1918, the War Department had invested about a million dollars in American University in, in buildings, uh, in, in infrastructure. And the plan was that the War Department would either purchase American University or seize it by eminent domain along with all the land around the campus that they were using as a proving ground and a testing ground, and they would turn it into a permanent seat for chemical warfare research beyond the war. Um, Now, that might well have come to pass except for something that happened on August 3rd of 1918. And on that morning, uh, there were some soldiers who were doing an experiment at an outdoor uh, Lewisite still on the American University campus, and the pipes clogged, and there was an explosion, and a cloud of Lewisite was released from this outdoor still. And so it created this cloud that sort of floated roughly southwest across the campus and down a gully and enveloped a house that was just outside the barbed wire fence of the American University Experiment Station. Well, it just so happened that a former U.S. senator lived in that house. who's a man named Nathan Bay Scott. Hmm. And he was sitting on a porch uh, with his wife and his sister-in-law when this gas cloud began uh, sweeping toward them. And they got inside the house, uh, but not before all three of them had been exposed to the gas. And he wasn't killed. Uh, All three of them... Uh, were had sort of minor injuries, but it became a huge scandal that this uh, research station inside the city limits of Washington could be so dangerous and they could affect uh, civilians, including one who was as prominent as Nathan Bay Scott. So um, this created a great deal of tension between the Chemical Warfare Service and the Corps of Engineers, uh, as well as the uh, the commission which governed the city of Washington. And eventually... The Chemical Warfare Service had to abandon this plan, and they said, we're going to close up the experiment station after the war, and we're going to turn it back over to American University, which is what they did. But uh, they left some things behind. Uh, They had shells that were leaking. Uh, They had – there were items that they deemed too dangerous to move, Uh, so they buried (laughs) them. And, well, over subsequent uh, decades, all of this land was developed into a very – posh neighborhood. Uh, It was called Spring Valley. Um, And these were very, very large houses, mansions, really. Um, And this history of how this area and the campus was used for chemical warfare was essentially all but forgotten uh, until the 1990s. And in 1993, uh, during construction on a very sort of distant part of Spring Valley, an excavation crew uh, dug up a mortar that had been buried since probably 1918 or early 1919. Wow. And this backhoe operator heard uh, gas hissing out of this mortar shell, uh, called the 
fire department or the police, and they called in the army, and a state of emergency ensued, and a cleanup began, which is actually continuing today, 25 years later. (laughs) Uh, A quarter of a century, Spring Valley is still being cleaned up from this work of 100 years ago. Theo Emery is a journalist and the author of the book Hellfire Boys, The Birth of the U.S. Chemical Warfare Service and the Race for the World's Deadliest Weapons. 